Have you, have you all ever met somebody who seems to thrive on conflict? Maybe you're married to somebody like that. I don't know. <laughs> don't raise your hands if that's what you're thinking. No, I, uh, I, over the years, I actually have, I've got several friends that would probably fall into that category. My wife is not one of them, by the way. Um, which seems kind of ironic because personally, I, I'm a conflict avoider. Anybody else in the room a conflict avoider? And it seems ironic that I would be drawn towards people who thrive on conflict until I realize, you see what I've, I've discovered over the years is that um, sometimes living by the mantra, avoid conflict at all costs, uh, just creates more conflict. Have you ever noticed that? So, I believe that one of the reasons why I have gathered a group of friends who seem to thrive on conflict is because I see something in them that I'm lacking. Um, I know that oftentimes it's better in a healthy way, if possible, to um, confront an issue rather than simply avoid it. That's the healthiest way to do it. Now, there, obviously, there's a balance. I've noticed about these friends that, have, that seem to thrive on conflict. They have a tendency sometimes to create conflict in situations where they don't need to have conflict. Uh, so there is a balance. And I, actually, I think that's one of the reasons why they've probably been drawn into relationship with me is because they maybe see something in me that they don't have, which makes us all better. That's the way it's supposed to work, by the way. Have you ever noticed that? Well, I share that with you this morning because I know that conflict is a part of everybody's life. And what we struggle with as human beings is how to deal with conflict in a healthy and Christian way. Now, here's the deal. There's a lot of people who believe that as Christians, we are called to avoid conflict at all costs. And that is not what the Bible teaches. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some biblical tools that will help you to um, approach conflict in a healthy way that will ultimately lead to everything being better. All right, And this, this tool that I want to share with you today is called Christian unity. Now even saying that, I know right now that you all are uh, misinterpreting what Christian unity really is. And that's what this scripture today is going to help us to understand. Because people have misunderstood the concept of Christian unity, um, we have found ourselves as Christians um, in destructive relationships. Not just Christians, but even Christians. Because we, we think Christian unity means one thing when ultimately it means something else. So, if that's something that you think you could use a little help with today, how to um, approach inevitable conflict in a healthy and Christian way, I invite you to open up your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of John chapter 17. And as you're doing that, as I try to do every week, I'll give you a little context uh, for the passage that we're going to be looking at today. So, here in John chapter 17, uh, the scene that we're giving entree into uh, could easily be... You know, at the top of a lot of Bibles, they'll have different sections entitled certain things. Well, the particular section that we're going to look at today could easily have been described or entitled The Calm Before the Storm. Now, why is that? Well, what is happening here, unbeknownst to everybody else except to Jesus, Judas has already put his plan of betrayal into motion. Nobody knows that but Jesus. 
And because Jesus knows it's happening, he realizes that his time here on earth is quickly drawing to a close. And there are some things that he needs to say, some truths that he needs to reinforce in his disciples. So he, he uses this time um, effectively and um, um, graciously, I guess you could say. So he t- shares with them some things that maybe he hasn't shared with them before. Here in John chapter 17, he reinforces some things, as I mentioned before. But ultimately, the best use of his time is he decides to pray. And he prays for three things here in chapter 17, in John chapter 17. He prays for himself because he knows what's about to happen and he's freaked out. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to face it, but he knows he needs to because sometimes doing the right thing is hard, right? So he prays for himself. He prays for his remaining 11 disciples. And then he prays for you. Actually, he prays for every Christian that will um, come into the fold from in all time and in all places. And here's what he prays for. This is the ironic thing. The thing, of all the things that he could pray for on your behalf, Jesus prays for Christian unity. John 17, 23, you heard Hannah. Now envision this. Jesus is praying to his papa, to his dad. He's talking to God. And he says, I in you and they in me. Bring them together in such complete unity that the world might know that you have sent me. In other words, what he's saying is, he's saying, um, I want you to use my people. Not just the disciples. He wants you to, I want you to use God. I want you to use my people um, as evidence to the world that you sent me into the world. Into the world. He says, I and you, they and me, bring them together in such complete unity that the world might know that you have sent me and that you love them just as you have loved me. All right. Now, if you listen closely as I recited that verse to you, you're prob- some of you are probably thinking, well, that's one uh, prayer that never got answered. Because I don't think there has ever been a time in history when Christians agreed on everything, right? You know what I'm talking about. So my question is, why? Was it because God wasn't listening? I don't think so. If you ever think that the reason why you don't get your prayers answered is because God isn't listening, um, perish the thought, God is always listening. There's another reason. If you didn't get your prayer answered, or probably more accurately, if you didn't get your prayer answered the way you wanted your prayer answered, there's another reason other than God wasn't listening. God is always listening. Maybe it's because, um, maybe it's because God uh, isn't going to make us human beings do things. That's true, right? God never makes anyone do anything. God could make you do things. God has the power to make you do things. But the fact is, the greatest, one of the greatest gifts that God has given you is free will. God is going to allow you to make whatever choice you choose to make. So that possibility is probably more right than the first one. I think, however, there's something else going on here than even that. I think what's happening is 
that most Christians have misinterpreted what Jesus was asking for. Bring them together in in complete unity. Most of us believe that Jesus was asking God, just as I alluded to a moment ago, that Jesus is asking God for us to agree on everything, to get along. But when you think about it, that's kind of a silly idea. Every single one of you are different. You you view life from a different perspective. You have different tastes, um, different likes and dislikes. It's just to agree on everything is just silly. In fact, I would go so far as to say for us to agree on everything would be boring, right? So, if that's not what was going on here, if Jesus, when he said bring them together in complete unity, and it didn't mean have them agree on everything, what was he praying for? Well, remember we, all the time I'm asking, I'm saying, listen, you've got to understand context. You've got to take time when you're reading your Bible. You don't ever just lift a verse out of its context and say, okay, I'm going to build my understanding or my theology about God on this one verse. Never, never, never do that. Because context and history um, is... It's so important that you will become something not Christian if that's what you decide to do. So, we need to understand more context here. And the deeper context of what's going on here in um, chapter, in this, actually it's more than just one chapter, is that Jesus is having his last supper with his disciples during this time. Okay? Now, why is that important? whole bunch of stuff happens during his last supper, right? They're having, they're celebrating um, the Seder meal. We're going to do that in just a minute. Um, he washes their feet. That's kind of cool, right? He teaches you something that we don't have, I'm not going into today, but there's something very cool that is taught in that. But if you recall, one of the most important things that happens in this scene, in, the, in this whole experience, which we have dubbed the last supper, Jesus gives them a new commandment. So, what is this new commandment? Do you remember? He says, I give to you this new commandment, and it is to love one another. Now, you all are going, there's nothing new about loving one another. Everybody knows what love is. I'm here to tell you, I don't think most people know what love is. You may think you know what love is, but you don't know what love is. Jesus was giving them this new commandment to love one another and the love that he was teaching them that not only through his words but through his actions was something that was so countercultural that the culture wouldn't even recognize it. Bring them together. A new commandment to love one another. The world's definition of love is... If you love me, I'll love you. If you'll do this for me, I will do this for you. And by the way, if you don't love me, I won't love you. And if you don't do this for me, I won't do that for you. This, what was so revolutionary about this love that Jesus was talking about was, he says, this is the way I want you to love one another. I want you to say, I'm going to love you 
whether you love me or not. I'm going to be kind and respectful to you whether you're kind and respectful to me or not. By the way, it's not, no different today than it was 2,000 years ago, is it? It's still, this new commandment is still countercultural. The world, so the world doesn't get it when they see love like that and they pay attention. Now, it's not to say that they embrace it, but they'll go, that's weird. And some people are drawn to it and other people are going, that's just weird. <laughs> right? So, when Jesus says in John 17, 23, when he says, bring them together in complete unity, he's not saying, Lord, have them agree on everything. He's saying, Lord, unite them in this radical counterculture kind of love. Bring them together in, in unity of understanding that says, I'm going to love even if you don't love me back. I'm going to respect you even if I don't agree with you. Because when you do that, when you love that way, when you're brought together in that kind of unity, the world will notice. Now, that is, again, doesn't mean they're going to love you because you're doing it. But they will notice. That makes sense, doesn't it? Bring, unite them in this kind of love. Because the world will notice. Actually, it makes everything better. It doesn't make sense to think that he was praying, um, Lord, have them agree on everything. The Christian unity means the Christians agree on everything. And then, because when you buy into that, that misinterpretation, you also then buy into the misinterpretation that says, well then, uh, if, we do, if I do have conflict with somebody, if I don't agree with them, then, uh, and that you will, by the way, that'll happen. When that happens, I find I'm in conflict with someone then if you buy into that, that lie that says that Jesus says Christian unity means you agree all the time, it also then will cause you to believe that um, uh, you are called to avoid conflict at all costs too. And we've already determined that that's, that's not healthy. It's good sometimes to avoid conflict when it's not that big a deal. But Simply avoiding it all the time just makes everything a mess because it doesn't go away. Jesus never once said, agree on everything. Jesus never once said, avoid conflict at all costs. What he said was, be united in a new commandment. Let that which defines you as a Christian and as Christians be unconditional love. Even, maybe especially when you disagree with one another. Because what happens when the world finds itself in conflict? It leads to arguments, often hatred, and then violence, right? 
what should define a Christian individually in relationships that we experience and corporately is an unconditional love that says, I'm, I, this may, I'm sorry, but I'm not playing into this. I'm going to choose to love you and respect you even if you don't love and respect me back. I have no idea if any of you have brought conflict into church today or not. I suspect you did. I mean, having enough people here that somebody is. Listen to what Jesus is saying to you today. Stop avoiding it and address it by Loving people unconditionally. Loving your spouse or your friend unconditionally, whether they are treating you nice or not. You're thinking, how do I do that? <laughs> right? Because <laughs> she just pushes my buttons. <laughs> I'll tell you how you do it. God has not only given us that book, he has also given us the most beautiful, perfect reflection of unconditional love that the world could ever know. And his name is Jesus. 